What's up, guys? Super excited to let you know that we're now releasing transcripts of the podcast. It's linked in the podcast description. You can also find it on LinkedIn at Danny Langloss in our documents section. If you're not following us on LinkedIn, please do. We're releasing leadership content daily, really driving a ton of engagement. It's our main platform. If you haven't already for the podcast, please hit that subscribe button so you never miss another episode. Please give us a rating or a review. That really helps us reach more people organically. Thank you very much. Let's get after it. There are so many things that impact our ability to achieve success, but none are more important than leadership. Individuals and organizations rise and fall with leadership. We are here to help you rise. Thank you for joining us. This is the Leadership Excellence Podcast. Hello, leaders, and welcome to Leadership Excellence. My name is Danny Langloss, and today I'm joined by Liz Kislik, and we're going to talk about conflict at work and how to resolve it. Such an important, important topic. For 30 years as a management consultant, executive coach, and facilitator, Liz has helped clients such as American Express, Orvis, the Girl Scouts, Guthy Renker, Janssen Pharmaceuticals, and Highlights for Children solve their thorniest problems while strengthening the top and bottom lines. Her specialty is developing high-performing leaders and workforces for organizations from Fortune 500 to national nonprofits to family-run businesses. She's coached and mentors employees from the C-suite, HR professionals to frontline supervisors, motivating them with her wit, wisdom, and humanity. Her TED Talk, Why There's So Much Conflict at Work and What You Can Do to Fix It, has been viewed by more than 285,000 people. It's an amazing TED Talk. It'll be linked in the podcast uh, description, and you got to go check it out. Liz, welcome to the Leadership Excellence Podcast. Thank you, Danny, for that wonderful buildup. Yeah, well, you've earned it. You deserve it. You do have incredible wit. You are funny. And it, you just bring in this humanity side. So we're talking before we came on and she was asking about my knee. Those have been found though. I had ACL reconstructive surgery, you know, and it was just the, the kind of connection, humanity and the compassion. And like, it, it's okay to struggle and, and to feel that as we want to push forward. I'm like, you know, you really just are full of humanity. So thank you for that. You're welcome. Liz, talk to us about your leadership journey. What's got you to where you are today? When I graduated from college, I decided that unlike most of my friends who went to grad school, I wanted to work because in the work world, you can make things happen. And I loved school and I still love learning, but I just liked more action than it felt like everybody else was getting. So I went to work for the marketing agency where I had spent the prior two summers. And uh, they made me the best offer after I looked around and, and that's where I started. And I was supposed to be an account executive, but on my first day showing up, it turned out that the manager for what was called the statistical and tabulation department was on maternity leave. And so all of a sudden, I was responsible for a department of a dozen people um, without really any managerial experience. And uh, I did that for a while. And it was a wonderful opportunity because in a privately held organization, if they notice you, lots of things can happen. And 
I was promoted, I think, every six months for the first few years because there's always stuff that's going undone. And if you're willing to step in and take care of it, eventually they notice you're doing it and then they give you the job. At least that's what happened to me. Um, my least favorite job there, Danny, I was 23 years old and managing a 300-person call center. And it was so hard. Um, and I did not like it because you could not make it right enough. There were always so many things going wrong, just based on the number of people and the different projects, etc. cetera. Uh, but I worked at that firm for a number of years. And when I left there, I went out on my own. And I think what I found is that for me, being able to come to a new situation and see what's going on in there it's what I did all the time on the inside, but when you come as an outsider, there are ways in which people value your expertise more, and so you have more clout to help them actually fix the things that are going wrong, and it gives you a better perspective to see them. So I've been doing this for more than 30 years uh, on my own, and I have to say it has been so lucky and great. You're doing incredible, incredible work. Wow, at a very young age, a call center in charge of 300 people. I mean, coming right into the workforce, you're thrown into this leadership position. And you're right. If you can solve problems, if you can handle and manage conflict, and, and, and all problem solving isn't conflict-based, but a lot of the issues within organizations are conflict-based, right? Um, if you can do that, you're going to stand out and you're going to move through organizations. And that's why I'm so excited to equip people, bosses, leaders, aspiring leaders with some of these tools we're going to talk about today. So the question I had for you was, how did you get involved in this space of conflict? And then, and then you had said to me, you said, like, I never thought about it. How did, how did I become the conflict lady? So Liz, how'd you become the conflict lady? Um, I'm still sort of laughing about it. I think I'm as conflict diverse as the next person. You know, I don't like it. It's very uncomfortable. Um, but I care so much about the work happening. And sometimes you can't get to the good work if the stuff that's going on with the people is in the way. And we've all seen how you can go round and round and round and everybody knows what the project is or what the deliverables are. You might even have had this when you were in school and had to work on a group project. Um, when there's a conflict, it slows down the work. It's like grit in the gears. And I just can't stand that. You know, I just want to go mm -hmm. forward. And sometimes you can't blow through it you actually have to untangle it. And then you have to be willing to look at the truth about it. And we do get so avoidant about that. We're afraid of hurting people's feelings. We don't want to be the one who points out the terrible thing. Yeah. It's, it's really a tough thing. But if you're willing to do it, and, and there's no question, it's easier coming from the outside. Yes. 
to do it. And it's easier from the outside in some ways because you can see the value in all parties. And you can see why you would agree with them if you sat where they sat. One of the things that happened to me on one of my assignments was as I interviewed the disparate groups, there were really two main groups. Both groups, the people were surprised that I talked about liking the other people because they felt you had to be against the other people. But everybody was good. Everybody was trying hard. Everybody cared about the organization. They just got themselves at loggerheads and got stuck. So that was very meaningful, this idea that if you actually do like everybody, or perhaps I should say value everyone, and then you're looking at what the work needs, often you can see a way to pull a log out of the log jam and start things moving again. No, absolutely. And so, you know, what's funny when I think of, like you said, that I've never thought of myself as the conflict lady. What I see you <laughs> is as the problem solver lady, right? It's, yeah. it's really not, if we, if we step away from it and reframe it from, oh man, I've got to deal with this conflict and instead say, I've got to solve this problem. And when you're involved in any organization, I agree with you because I do consulting work as well. And I actually get excited when they're like, hey, we need some help solving this because it is easier to come in. You know, we don't have past experiences with people. We don't have these bias that happens. We don't fall into confirmation bias. We're not wearing certain glasses and lenses that we see it through. So we can see it a lot more objectively. And we come in and say, hey, we're here to help. They believe it because they're not competing against you for a job promotion. They're they're not, you know, trying to say, well, it's, you know, shipping, it's it's not production or it's sales. Like there's no, there, there's none of those other things. So one of the things I found interesting that you said was was a lot of times when there is conflict, we're gonna say it's a communication issue or or it's a people issue. But for you, like oftentimes it's a lot deeper than that. Mm-hmm. So that really goes to your point about the problem solving, because the conflict is really only one aspect of the problem. The, the conflict is the part where the folks aren't getting along. They're not collaborating well. They have different points of view and haven't found a way to align them, to mesh them, to give up things they're attached to. Um, and it, it also goes to your point about coming in from the outside because we're not attached to the history. We're seeing what exists today. We may be informed by the history. We ask about the history, but because we don't have a commitment to the history itself, we can take things more at face value and work from, from where they are. So, um, the communication part, we call it that, or the other thing that people call it, this really makes me nuts. It's a personality problem. As if there are particular kinds of personalities that are just meant not to get along, and therefore anything they would ever try to do together could never happen. Well, that can't possibly be true. <laughs> um, because almost every person can get along with some people. So there have to be ways that if we just shifted a little how we were looking at things, 
we'd be able to do that more. But what really is the base of the problem is not the bad communication that happened after three meetings that didn't go well. There was a problem before those communications fell apart. So looking for what that is in the classic iceberg form, the tip of the iceberg is the disagreement about the problem and how to solve it. The problem is everything under the waterline that might come from how the business was originally founded and what skills and lacks those founders had. And therefore, they built structures that supported how they were. And now three generations and 50 years later, those lacks are still manifesting somewhere in the organizational structure. So you get that kind of thing. Or it might come from completely outside the particular organization because there are economic realities or just take the pandemic. I mean, yeah, that's certainly created all kinds of conflict and is still doing it. Are we going back to the office? Which, and just for anybody who's listening, if you are a leader and you want to bring people back, please, please, please do not call it going back to work. They've been working. <laughs> It's back to the office or back to the plant or back to whatever. Those um, words matter. Oh, my God. It's so insulting when people have been trying to manage their kids and their elderly relatives and their own health and in a workspace that's not meant for work. And they are working. People mm -hmm. are trying. The vast majority of people are deeply committed, put out a lot of effort and just need a little recognition. So welcome them back to the office, encourage them to tell you what they really need to be able to do it comfortably. I'm sorry, that was just a pitch because it's happening all over that we're at the point where leaders really feel they need people back in many organizations. Yeah, And that's because as leaders, we miss our people. We don't feel like I do. leaders, right? <laughs> we don't feel like leaders if they're not around. So we think they have to be back, but in fact, we can lead them from anywhere. No, absolutely. I think that you know that's that's not a pitch. There, no matter if somebody's listening to a leadership podcast, that's a message they need to hear, regardless of what episode and what the overall content is about, right? That that's the message that, that we need to hear. Yeah, and yeah. and I think that's a, an important thing. One of the things, and you alluded to it when you're talking about this that, that I listened to in your TED Talk. Phenomenal, phenomenal TED Talk. Like I said earlier, you, you got to go listen to this thing. She did an amazing, amazing job. But oftentimes, conflict, animosity, problems exist within an organization based on things that happened 10, 20, 30 years ago. Oftentimes, there's conflict, disagreement, damaged relationships that have nothing to do with the people that are actually there and the people that came before them. I found that fascinating and interesting. And actually, in some of the relationships, and we repaired most of them within the city over the past couple of years, but one still exists. And it has nothing to do with the people that are in the current positions. Mm -hmm. It has everything to do with those became before us, told us things, shaped and created our perception. And so we see that. You know, you want to make a little more comment on that? Because I heard you talk about that in the TED Talk. Yeah, so there, you know, what I'm thinking of, there's some study, which of course I cannot remember, done with animals, can't remember if it was dogs or monkeys, 
um, that would go into some particular cage or enclosure. And if they came close to some certain area, they got a shock or a bad sound. I don't even remember what the nasty thing was. And they would bring in different sets of animals and expose them to this bad sound. And so animals would stay away from that part of the cage. And they would bring in new animals and expose them. And over time, they stopped ever having to do the shock or the sound or whatever it is. New animals came in and somehow they learned you do not go to that part of the cage. Wow. Nothing bad was happening. And there is no speech in the way we think about it. But they learned somehow that there was danger in that part of the cage. So we absorb this from each other. You know, they're now finding there are forms of social contagion um, just in the way, as you said before, our language matters. Anytime you see an eye roll, you know something is going on. You don't know what it is, but you know to be careful somehow. And just the idea of being careful built up over time says there's something bad. So then we're predisposed to think bad things about others who are near that eye roll, you know, yep. could have nothing to do with anything ever. I worked with one guy, this is years ago, executive vice president, such a sweet man, but very introverted and very shy. He actually was uncomfortable with other people. And we walked into the break room at this company together. I was slightly behind him. And he walked in and he sneezed and he did not greet the two women who were sitting there and he got something from the vending machine and he walked back out. And I later had the opportunity to interview them and one of them, just as part of the normal process, and one of them was very specific that this guy didn't like her. And I asked her how she knew that. I really like asking people how they know what they know. And she asked me if I saw the terrible face he made at her in the break room. All he did was sneeze and not talk. He had no animus toward her. In fact, he just didn't want to interact with her because he was not so good at interacting with people. But she took it as a personal slight and really believed it and carried that with her. So um, we get stuck in our own heads so much of the time. But if you can engage people in the parts of the problem that are not the interaction, then they start working on the same thing together. There's no value in telling people to like each other or get along with each other better. It is almost completely useless. Maybe it works on one in a hundred, but I haven't found it to be the case. But to work on the work, because we care and value the work, then you can start to see that the other person isn't so bad. And then you can talk more about how we can get along better. 
100%. Let's dive in to the, the five steps to resolving conflict. And so, so obviously, if you have an expert like Liz and you got major problems and, and you can bring her in, that, that's probably going to be the quickest resolution, right? Uh, because you're just so skilled at what it is you do. But, but day to day, we have problems and conflict and issues that we've got to handle and deal with ourselves. And so I think this five-step framework that you've created is is perfect for what you do coming in or perfect for the leadership team within to really get to and resolve problems. Can you tell us what those five steps are and then can we go through them individually? Will that work? Sure. Anybody can use the five steps. Um, and you are always looking at this from the perspective of the organization you are in, the whole organization. Okay. So, um, Keep in mind that the way they are in the TED Talk is so that they fit. You know, you're limited in time. Um, so the first one that I explain there is that you have to be able to rule out the possibility that there is in some way a bad actor, that there actually is a person who's messing stuff up. Because if a single individual is the source of a problem, one of the great things about business is you don't have to keep them. If they're in your family, if they're in your community, you may be stuck. But if people are ineffective in business after we coach and counsel them, it's legitimate to terminate employment. So we've got an advantage in that regard. And there are two kinds of things to look for the most. One is and this is in some ways the most easily recognizable, if you have somebody who is really a bully, who is hurting other people and has a pattern of doing that, that's just so unhealthy, very tough to change them, that's one. The other, which is more common but harder to see, is if someone actually does not have the right capability, skill, training to do the role that they're in. They are incompetent for the role that they're in because all kinds of hidden damage comes from that. They make the wrong decisions. They say the wrong things. Wrong processes start. That percolates through an entire organization. So if that's what you've got, the bully you want to get rid of, the incompetent, you may just want to reassign. Okay, so... That's the first thing. Can I ask you a question about? Oh, of course. Would yeah, yeah. would a gossiper or a shit stirrer fall under the bullying, or would that be? Would you see that as a separate category? Because that's something we look for quite a bit. Okay, that's fabulous. Um, so that kind of person, I would throw the drama queen in there too. Um, they are in the Venn diagram. Sometimes they're a bully. Sometimes. They just need some more excitement mm -hmm. in their life, attention for them, things to observe. Often they are not motivated by bad. So you really have to look carefully. Don't assume they're a bully. Um, it, there are more ways to get them to change their behavior and to figure out what they need to stay so fully engaged. Somebody who's doing what you're talking about, it's actually exciting for them in a way to be at work. They're just getting excited about the wrong things. So you have to make sure they've got plenty of inspiration 
and that they enjoy what they do and feel satisfied by the content of the work. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, step two. Step two. Okay. So in my process, and this is actually the biggest part in terms of time. And um, Danny talked about, I can do it fast, but it's not true. <laughs> it takes a, lo a long time. My process may be more straightforward because I've done it so much, but you can't do this fast in the same way that your ACL, the time it takes to heal is the time it takes to heal. And if you don't give it time, you re-injure. So um, you got to do your research. And by that, I mean you interview all the crucial players. And that could be a lot of people. I'm working with a relatively small organization now but it has a lot of parts and I just did 30 interviews. Um, you don't want just senior leaders because they're not close enough to the action and they often don't know what's going on underneath. They have nice concepts about things. Um, so you need key players and you have to ask them not why they're upset about the conflict. Do not go directly to that because then they have to give you the position they have already taken on the conflict. And you want to know about the problem so that you can deal with the problem and not just the interpersonal parts. So asking them why they're in the organization and why they stay is useful. These are all my secret questions. Okay. Asking them what makes them nuts at work is very useful. Asking them what they would change and making them be specific. Because if you're interviewing enough people, you get two dozen specifics, you start to have a very interesting view of the organization because almost everybody tells you something different. Yeah. Um, and asking them how to realize more of the potential of the organization is also a good one. So there are all kinds of different questions, and you can follow where they take you. But you want to then line up a kind of panoramic view. Think of it as an organizational 360. You may also have to look at, you know, a P&L. You may have to look at acquisition and retention stats for customers or employees or, you know, there are all kinds of data you might also want to look at. But hearing from people, their perceptions gives you a lot of insight. You have to be careful not to make judgments too fast. Mm -hmm. Let it all come in. Don't assume that there's a good side and a bad side. What I hear you saying, and in my mind, the analogy I use is, let's say this is a hundred piece puzzle. Nobody, not the CEO, not the VP, not the frontline supervisor, not the line worker has all hundred pieces. You know, um, it, if, if a is doing their job, maybe they've got 80 of the hundred pieces, but I would challenge to say a top mm -hmm. leader doesn't ever have more than 80% of the pieces. And, and so getting this 360 view, understanding boots on the ground, as you began to talk about this, it's so true. And I realized this, what gets to me is filtered. Yes. Right? People, oh my goodness. People don't want me to know 
that there are problems and issues. They don't want me to think that they can't handle those problems and issues, right? And if I'm doing my job as a leader, I'm creating very high levels of psychological safety. I'm approachable. When people come in, I'm non-judgmental. I ask questions. I praise them for what they're doing. We dig deeper. But so, so this whole recognition, no matter who you are in the organization, there's no way you can have all the puzzle pieces. And by engaging people, that's how we get those pieces. But we can't engage people with those glasses on that we see things through if we're there every day. We've got to take those off, untie the emotions, right? And, and go out and, and do that. So I, it's pure gold. And the questions you just gave, pure, pure gold. Awesome stuff. You're so right that you can't see it all. And also, Danny, they want you to be happy with them. Yes. Even the ones who are a thorn in your side, they want you to be happy with them. It matters to them. And so people are more likely to try to please and therefore cover in some ways either whatever little ugly bits they've got. Or you know what it's like? It's like a gambler who thinks, I'll make it back next time. They don't want to call it quits. They want to keep trying. So they want to keep solving the problem themselves because if you have to get involved, many people actually think they failed. Absolutely. You know, they don't want the problem on their watch. But sometimes the very most responsible thing they can do is the equivalent of saying, boss, this is something you need to know. I know it's real, but I don't think I can handle it on my own. It's time to address it. Someone who is willing to do that and the, has the courage it takes to do that, that's somebody you want to pay attention to. Absolutely. It's about creating a culture where asking for help isn't seen as a weakness. It's seen as a strength that's encouraged and it's modeled. As leaders, we model that by asking our team for help. Right. Exactly so, right. So what's number three? Okay. So three, this will seem completely separate from all those questions. What's the purpose, the mission, the vision, the goals? Why are we here? Go back to that. Align around that. Let me also throw in values of behavior, if you can get to them, how we intend to treat each other. Um, there needs to be a kind of big agreement about what we all care about together. One of the things you're looking for is where are we on the same page so you can build out from Absolutely. that. If you start with the points of disagreement, it is very hard to ever get to agreement. But if you start with agreement, then you can tolerate each other a little more. You can have more regard for each other. That lets the sides then feel just a little safer when they're looking at the hard stuff. And maybe they'll be willing to expand into the hard stuff just a little bit more. So aligning around any of the big solid things that ought to be in place is really the next stage. Love it. Aligning purpose, such an important part of employee engagement, of creating ownership within our teams, because you and I might not like each other, but if I'm aligned to purpose and I'm fully committed to what we're trying to accomplish, 
I'm going to put that in front of the fact that we maybe don't like each other or see eye to eye. Cause when I leave, we, we don't leave together. I don't have to, you don't have to go to the bar with me. You don't have to go to dinner or come over for a family thing. Right. But if we're aligned to that purpose there, then we can put some of those personal things aside and work towards it. If we're aligned well enough, that's, that's some powerful, powerful stuff there. And weirdly, we actually get to like each other a little better. Whereas if we like each other, but we can't resolve something together, we feel worse about each other and we carry that around. Yeah, 100%. One of my favorites, and we'll dive into it in another, in another conversation, is when you got two people that are like really good friends, best friends away from work who cannot work together. <laughs> It's an interesting thing. I'm like, you guys love each other. You guys get along well with each other. Why can't let's figure this thing out here? Yeah. Um, number four. What's number four? Okay, so four is really where you're putting those parts together a little bit for the first time. But if you're the person figuring it out, all your powers of persuasion come into play now because the next stage is to look for um, allies or influencers who can help you get your points across. These points might be proposals of the things we need to do differently. They might be about how I want you all to behave. They might be that we need to shift some of our goals. Could be almost anything. But in every organization, there are people we rely on to get others to rally round. And the converse is also true. There are others that if you don't bring them in at the right time, they might throw a rock now and then. You know, they, they just don't like it if they're not included from the beginning. So you, you got to know who you're working with and figure out where you have leverage. Because if you start a proposal in the wrong place and it gets sniffed at or frowned at or ignored too early, the proposal is dead and you got to come back with a new one. So you've got to find your allies throughout and do your work where you have them. Like water finds its path. Find the little nodes in the organization. It could be within a single team. It, this doesn't have to be a you know, huge multinational thing. Um, wherever you can get points of agreement or support. Again, you are looking for where can you get it to work? Start there. This, so early on in my tenure as police chief, you know, myself and the two lieutenants, we sat around and talked, you know, and, and talked about the idea that not one of us have extreme influence or complete respect of every person on this department. There's only 31 people on the department, but between the three of us, we have most of the department. Additionally to that, we're very smart, strategic about the fact, and it's in this creating a culture of leadership concept that I've been writing about and, and working on that leadership isn't title, it's influence. It's relationships. It's founded in trust. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times the informal leaders within your organization have more influence and more sway than your formal leaders do. And going out 
and including them and engaging them, right? And doing that early is so important because if there's a few people within the police department, if they get on board, pretty much the department's coming. Yes. And so this whole idea of getting allies and understanding that, and you got to have a really good pulse on your organization to do that, but it is so, so powerful. You know, years ago, you know, every time something new came out, everybody fought it. They talk about, you know, cops and change. And if you're, you know, you, if you want to really create a riot and uproar, you know, change the patch and the whole place will go kind of crazy. Right. Like, um, but it's with people like change is tough, fear, uncertainty, all that. But this whole idea of get allies on all levels, identify your informal leaders, engage them early, make adjustments to what it is you're doing as need to start positive. And when you do that momentum will create momentum. Can I go back to the thing you said about title for a second? Yeah. Because we think of title hierarchy status, positional power often, but in the same way that I said, you don't start there to ask the questions necessarily. I mean, you have to talk to the people who are in the formal hierarchy and leadership. You just can't take them as the whole thing. That's your 80% puzzle piece issue. Um, if you ever have to rely on enforcement that comes from the hierarchy, whatever you're trying to build is brittle. As soon as you have to go to enforcement rather than choice, something is going to break. Whether somebody leaves because they just don't want to be told, do this thing, could be a good thing, could be not a good thing, or they become grit in the gears, something is going to break. Enforcement should always be the last ditch, and it is because you've tried everything else. And that's true. Ever, I'm not just talking about the yeah. police. That's true everywhere. Everywhere. No, I absolutely love that. I, I tell people if, if the boss is giving a lot of direction all the time, then the boss is failing. And anytime you got to go to the hammer or the enforcement, we do, if we, if people do things because we want them to do it, they'll do it when we stand over them and watch them. We want people to do it because they want to do it. It's important to them. And then they're doing it for them. Cause when we do things for us, it completely changes the game. So here's a great tip for that. When you have to make some kind of change, do a pilot with a volunteer. Ask for, now you have to be savvy when you pick your volunteer because some volunteers you know just love to do the new thing but won't follow through. That's bad because then it looks like your initiative isn't working. But if you have a pilot and you say, this is an experiment, we're going to learn from it, and then the results are good, of course we hope, then you can offer a validation round, who wants to go next, and right. people opt in. And then by the end, it's like, who's that weird person over there that isn't part of this yet? That's how you're building it through influence. That, that's a master class right there. Like Liz is, uh, is creating her master class. I, pure, pure gold. So number five. Is okay. So, so important. Yeah. So, Love the stuff in this. So the brain likes habits. I think it's something like 95% of our brain activity is habitual or habituated. We do it repetitively because it's easy. This is why when you do something new, you sometimes feel confused. You don't have the grooves 
dug into your brain yet. So even when everybody has agreed, here's this new thing we're going to do better. We don't want to fight anymore. We understand what we need to do. We have habits of reacting badly to the other person, or we have habits of taking the old chain of actions and just repeating it the way we always have. And so we're going to mess it up all the time. So we need ways of dealing with the habits that are concrete and not just having the conceptual goodwill that we're doing it the, the new way now. Okay, you can make these up so that they fit your culture and whatever the things are. Um, some of the things that I do, I've, I made these all up because, you know, I was somewhere at a particular time and I had to think of something to say when something wasn't working. You can make an example out of anything. Um, so one of the things that I started doing was when you have people who've been in a conflict, they really like to complain about the other person or the other side. And particularly when you are in the facilitative role, they want to make sure you know just how bad the other side is. I'm dramatizing this a little. Sometimes they're just coming because they don't know what to do. But often mm -hmm. they want you to know that they are the good one and the other is the bad one. They're trying to create an ally. Yes, that's exactly right. They're trying to create an ally. And also they're trying to justify to themselves. Because if you believe them, they know, okay, I really am the good one. Yeah. Um, so I ask them, I say this in a lot of different ways, but basically I'm asking, are you saying that this other person is truly evil? Or are you saying that this other person is actually a screw up? Or are you saying, I make it bad. Mm -hmm. I put it in a way that goes beyond their actual lived experience and dramatizes it so that they cannot agree with their own positioning. So that they have to step back from it and say, no, 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 they're not a bad person. It's just this thing they do. And then we can look at, well, what's the thing you're doing? And come back to, we got to fight that habit together. So that's one kind of technique. Um, the other one that is one of my favorites and one of the ones I get asked about the most by people who've seen the TEDx is I have these funny little cards from a game I bought. It's little pictures of elephants on the cards. And when we are in a challenging discussion, I deal them out to people in the room. And whenever one of those bottom of the iceberg issues comes up, when there is what's called an undiscussable, everybody knows you can play an elephant card to signify the elephant in the room. And somebody turns over an elephant card and everybody in the room gets it. There is no question. And sometimes nobody even has to say what the thing is. They all start laughing. And then I have to ask them to explain to me what the elephant is about. And then they can talk about it. It is very hard to have an opening to say the thing that you are afraid other people will shun you for, that you will be punished for raising it. And I'm not talking about punishment like somebody goes over and, you know, knocks the other guy in the head. I'm talking about 
they won't like me, they will turn away from me, they won't help me, all of the sort of tribal responses that we have, we don't want to be by ourselves, we want to be in community. If I bring up this hard thing, the room will go silent and everyone will look at me. That's as terrifying sometimes as the idea of losing your job. So you got to make it safe for people. And sometimes a jokey thing helps. That's awesome. That's awesome. The other thing um, that, that you talked about that I liked was this lizard listening. And so oh. our emotional response that's really framed through how we already see the other person. It's kind of what you talked about in the beginning of the show about how this girl thought this guy didn't like her because he coughed or whatever it was when he went in to get, he didn't say anything. So, right. Right. So um, technically this is incorrect in terms of the neuroscience. Okay. Uh, there's all kinds of question about what is sometimes referred to as lizard brain. We have different sections of the brain that act as if they are at different stages of evolutionary development. And um, the amygdala, well, there's a part of the brain that in effect is in almost instinctive response and it is our response to threat. Threat, harm, danger, all of that kind of stuff. It's what triggers our fight, flight, freeze, fold responses. And when that gets set off, I mean, we're animals first. You know, we're very fancy, but we're, we're animals first. And when that gets set off, you almost literally can't hear the other person. You just hear this little track of your own thoughts. You're not really trying to see what's going on over there. So um, when people can be aware that they are subject to this kind of lizard listening and the reptilian motif is great because it's cold and it's scaly and it doesn't seem warm and giving. Um, that's when we're acting as if there is real and present danger mm -hmm. instead of being open to each other as the compassionate human beings that almost all of us have the potential to be. Wow. Liz, this has been great. So much fun. There's, there's conflict, there's problems, challenges, opportunity, right? We can transition that all the way to, to that word of opportunity, but so often we, we just are afraid of addressing the challenge or the opportunity or the conflict. And we, we need to have tools to be equipped to do that. And, and I've really enjoyed a few different episodes of the podcast. Fierce Conversations with Luis Gonzalez was a great conversation about this. Um, you know, Ron Carucci's, to be honest, podcast, Organizational Honesty was great about that. You know, Kevin Cruz's podcast we just released this past week. Um, on employee engagement, loyalty, driving that, you know, emotional commitment. Mm -hmm. But this is so important and, and to continue to see this in different ways and the way you bring it to life, I think is really special. And so thank you very much for taking the time to come on. It's been so fun to talk to you. Yeah. Do you have a call to action or anything you want to challenge our listeners to? Um, here is what I would say. There's always something you can do. And you can always go back. There is, I mean, sometimes you've tried everything and the thing you have to do is save yourself and get out. That happens. Yeah. 
because it's not good for you. It doesn't mean it's not good for anybody, but it's not good for you. But in general, if you're willing to think about it, there's always something to try as an experiment and see how it works. And in any of these difficult conversations, you can always go back and say, you know, I was thinking about it again. Oh, so I want to offer to your readers, you know, I have a free ebook on my site. Oh, awesome. Um, that is about the interpersonal aspects of conflict, because once you've uncovered all this stuff, some of it is just how we talk to each other. Um, so yeah. that does need to be dealt with, too. So uh, on my website, oh, and there's scads of material there. But there is this free ebook, and you can get my weekly blogs or my monthly newsletter. And um, if you stay calm yourself and try to be, it's not that you don't get triggered, we all do, but then to restore yourself to a state of calm, then you can pay attention to what's going on and you can figure out something to do. No, absolutely. So what we'll do for our listeners and the details of the podcast, so there'll be direct links to those things and those resources. When you talk about those triggers and that response and how do we keep our poker face, keep control of emotions, another great episode with Karen Shrory were the seven levels of energy and mm -hmm. understanding where we're at versus that level one victimhood, level two conflict, and we step into where we can start to create you know, win-wins. So Liz, so great to have you talking about conflict at work, how to resolve it, um, one of the things, and you said this in your TED Talk, if we want to solve conflict, we have to start digging. And that really ties in to your five steps, right? Ruling out, is this a single person issue? Do we have a bully, somebody who's incompetent? Um, you know, asking the right questions to the right people. You know, as anybody in the organization doesn't have all 100 pieces to the puzzle, not the leader, not the frontline supervisor, not the person on the front line. Uh, there's things that we all don't know, don't understand, don't perceive the right way. And so we got to go out and make sure we get all hundred pieces of the puzzle or as many of them as we can get. Is everyone aligned? Are we aligned on purpose? Are we aligned on vision and goals? Are we aligned on knowing expectations and responsibility? Finding allies, right? Identifying informal leaders and formal leaders as we roll out and we make these changes, whether it be habits and behaviors or whether we're changing a, a line or whether we're going to do things completely different. Um, but finding those allies, rolling it out, maybe consider, as Liz says, doing a pilot program. And then teaching ourselves new habits and what our responses are, having the courage, if there is that elephant in the room, to be able to call that out and feel safe to do so, uh, understanding the lizard brain and how to control, we just talked about our energy and our emotional levels when somebody upsets us and all we, all we hear is our own thoughts now and we stop hearing them. And then that evil logic card, is the person evil? Are they just a horrible person? No. Okay, let's get that. Okay, what is actually the problem? What's our part of the problem? We always say if there's a problem, the first thing we got to do is say, what part of the problem have I? Mm -hmm. And if, until we eliminate ourselves from the problem, we don't have a right to address that with the other person. So great, great recaps. As a reminder, the transcript for this will be released the day before the podcast is released. Uh, we'll be posting all week on LinkedIn, breaking down this incredible conversation, sharing resources from Liz. Uh, in the details of the podcast. So, so definitely check that out. To our listeners, if you haven't already, smash that subscribe button so you never miss another episode. Consider giving us a rating or review, especially on Apple, so we can reach more people. And remember, always be committed to excellence. 